Previously on The Saucer Life. A woman, a contact, a doctor, and a prediction. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. I'm Aaron Gullius. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking. This is Encounter 403, The Aftermath. Last time, we began our look at Dorothy Martin and the prediction she believed she received from otherworldly beings. Severe cataclysms signaling the impending end of everything were to strike on December 21st. In this installment, we look at what happened, the reaction from the mass media and the flying saucer community, and the eventual fates of Dorothy Martin, Dr. Charles Lothed, and his wife Lillian, and others with whom they associated. This is as close to a sprawling epic as we're likely to get here on The Saucer Life, and it's threatening to become more of a concept album at this point. So let's get to unpacking all of this stuff. Apart from an earthquake in California, December 21st, 1954 was free from catastrophe. Certainly, the disastrous deluge predicted had not occurred. Now, I didn't mention it last time for some reason, but at this point, I think it's important to point out that this was not the first failed prediction. On December 17th, Martin's group was told that it would be rescued from the coming disasters by flying saucers. Nothing happened. The group, exhibiting the psychological phenomenon the authors of When Prophecy Fails would dub cognitive dissonance, struggled with the apparent reality gap between what they believed and what had occurred. As many in this situation do, they adjusted their beliefs ever so slightly to rationalize the apparent incorrectness of the prediction and to introduce new information. The scheduled pickup of the 17th must have been a test of their faithfulness, a practice run, a cosmic fire drill. Now, on the 21st, with a lack of planet-ending disasters, that faith would be tested once again. As a response to the lack of disasters, Martin issued a press release. Due to the confusion which has arisen from the prophecy, we have decided to unite forces to complete the prophecy. It was reported on the 21st that the cataclysm was stayed by the hand of God of Earth. The date was given in order to alert the people to the possibilities in case of a disturbance so that we could avoid panic. It has come to our attention that the flying saucers, or more correctly, the guardians of Earth, are here for a definite purpose. They have been surveying the Earth where there are faults in the Earth's surface, and they are prepared to land in case of an impending emergency and evacuate some of the people before the disturbance occurs. It is necessary for the people to be prepared and alert to the possibilities in order to avoid panic. We wish to call the people's attention to the fact that there have been a number of violent disturbances in the past few years, particularly the one several years ago in Assam and Tibet, and more recently in the Mediterranean area and Western Europe. So, God had protected the Earth from the cataclysm, but the saucers are still around to make sure there won't be any other cataclysms, and if there are, they'll try to do something about them. This gets Martin off the hook for the prophecy not being fulfilled, But the references to recent earthquakes provide some reassurance that the predicted dangers would have happened if not for divine intervention. It actually reminds me a lot of a particular self-styled Bible prophecy group that went 
all in on the Y2K disaster back in 1999. They sold the vacuum-sealed food, circulated endless news stories that related to the coming disaster, solicited funds to enable them to, quote, get the word out, and, truth be told, probably made a lot of money in the process. When Y2K turned out to be a dud, their narrative shifted. They hadn't been wrong, per se. They'd been deceived themselves by Y2K hucksters they'd trusted. Of course, they'd passed that deception on, profiting in the process. As time went on, their story changed further, becoming a bit like Martin's press release. Y2K-related disasters had been supernaturally prevented, most likely by Satan, in order to embarrass and humiliate this particular ministry. And I'm putting ministry in the strongest possible sarcasm air quotes. After the non-events of the 21st, Loff had shot back to East Lansing. His sister had filed papers to have Charles and Lillian declared mentally incompetent and to have herself appointed guardian both of their minor children and their property. Overnight, Loff had packed up the kids and took them back to Chicago with them to Martin's house where they awaited the aliens, which honestly isn't really a good look if you're going to need to convince a judge you're a fit parent. There would be one more prediction, this one for Christmas Eve. Martin received a communication that at 6 p.m. on the 24th, the group should gather on the sidewalk in front of her Oak Park home and sing Christmas carols. The space people would visit them. Martin issued press releases and invited the public to witness the event, which to me suggests that at some level she thought it was going to happen. But it didn't. When Prophecy Fails included a transcript of the conversation between Lawhead and a reporter, Lawhead's explanations and excuses are, in the author's words, quote, incompatible and half-hearted. They certainly were a shift away from the confident press release explaining God's intervention. Lawhead claimed that there had been one spaceman in the crowd, he'd been wearing a helmet and a gown, but Lawhead didn't talk to him. Lawhead denied that there had been a prediction of a manifestation of the space people, only that they were open to the possibility of welcoming the space people if the space people showed up. And he also claimed that they had not appeared because they feared the crowd would be unfriendly, despite the fact that he already explained that one of them did show up. The crowd that Martin specifically called on to be present was apparently the crowd the aliens were going to be frightened of. It was a weird explanation, and you could tell he was getting sort of flustered and, and not really happy with having to explain what was going on. In the weeks following the final failed prophecy, the group that had grown up around Martin's and, to a lesser extent, Lawhead's leadership drifted away. The reaction of the Flying Saucer community to this was interesting, and it's an angle that, as far as I can tell, has been rarely explored. To be fair, such an exploration was outside the scope of When Prophecy Fails. Their focus was on the way that groups persist after disconfirming events and the dynamics of those groups. In broader histories of saucer belief, including ones I've written, it sort of falls into the gap between religion and saucers, and this is probably more of a factor. This took place almost simultaneously with George Adamski's skyrocketing popularity and the furor created by Jim Mosley's expose of Adamski that we talked about several weeks ago. Until I started working on the story for this podcast, I had never really recognized the impact the story had on flying saucer belief, and the response from some corners of the saucer scene to the events in Oak Park. One of the most extensive accounts of the entire affair came from Gray Barker in the sixth issue of The Saucerian, published in spring 1955. In this article, Barker revealed, actually, that Martin had written to him in 1954. The letter I 
received included an enclosure, a message especially to me from Garcia Sai, a spaceman, and this is the message Garcia sent to me. Dear Mr. Gray Barker, I am in contact with the pilot of an active spacecraft in the vicinity of Flatwoods. We have made contact there and expect to land in May or June. At that time, you will be contacted. The contact will be one of the space people. You will look for a scar on the left cheek, the color of his hair. Last time, there was so much confusion, they failed to see what did happen. This time, it will be planned, so there will be a contact on Earth to receive us. Now, when one receives his first message from a spaceman, he is likely to disbelieve it, especially if he is the least skeptical. But, in the saucer business, you can never tell, and I thought it would be only fair to see if the spaceman was serious about me. Barker asked Martin for more information, and, and did describe a visit from a young man with a scar on his cheek with a tale of aliens. Barker, however, suspected that he was not from outer space, but rather from Bridgeport, West Virginia. Martin and her channeled contacts provided more vague clues. The next contact would have a limp in his left foot, for example. That contact between Barker and, and this space visitor didn't pan out either. Another prediction was made for someone to make contact with Barker in September. Barker summed up his opinion of Martin's contacts in this way. After giving the spacemen ample time to prove their abilities, I began to figure that Mrs. Martin had contacted some rather inept extraterrestrials, or that the information was coming from quite a remarkable subconscious of a woman in Oak Park. Barker's communications with Martin trailed off at this point, except for mimeographed copies of her end-of-the-world predictions that he'd received in the mail from Lillian Lothhead. Barker then reflected on the trials that Martin and Loth had suffered as a result of their failed predictions, focusing in great detail on the attempt to have the Lothheads declared insane and committed to a mental hospital. He presents the comments of the judge in the case. When the saucers finally had their day in court, they didn't do too badly for themselves, thanks to the sane outlook of a Lansing, Michigan judge, John McClellan. He ruled that believing in flying saucers, or that the end of the world impends, does not make anyone eligible for a mental hospital. Quote, there are millions of persons around the country with beliefs that do not match our own, but that is no reason to send them to mental. Martin, Barker explained, had her own legal troubles, as her neighbors sought to have her arrested for inciting riots and contributing to the delinquency of minors by promoting her teachings. Barker launched into a wonderful polemic on the dangers of saucer believers being persecuted despite constitutional protections for freedom of religion. Regardless of whether we believe in more conventional religions than in flying saucer religions, or whether we believe in any religions at all, there becomes a technicality that obligates us as Americans to protect the views of such saucer enthusiasts. Even though the reader may be a complete skeptic as to the entire flying saucer question, or even though he believes in saucers in a completely materialistic way, the connotations of the Lothhead Martin affair should be of great concern to him. As once, when people believed in them, there were really witches, and there were witchcraft delusions, during which innocent people were horribly persecuted. And as there really will be saucers, when enough people believe in them, there may be saucer delusions, and persecution of people who study them, especially if saucers begin to land more openly, and the masses panic. If, for example, there were widespread landings of saucers this day, there would be danger of mass panic involving people who did not understand, and feared the unknown, even though the mission of the saucers were a friendly one. And once the masses went into panic, whom do you think they would hang from a tree, burn with fire, imprison, or otherwise persecute? Why, no one but you. You. 
a brief aside, the line, there really will be saucers when enough people believe in them, is might be one of my favorite lines that Barker ever wrote. Barker explained that the events surrounding Martin's failed prophecies were an object lesson here, an example of the persecution that could be visited upon any saucer believer in the right or wrong circumstances. And he closes with a declaration that is, is very Gray Barker-esque, um, but fitting to his topic. In closing, let it also be said that we believe, along with the four freedoms, the five freedoms, or whatever number we're supposed to have, we think Americans should enjoy an additional, if more informal, freedom. We believe everyone should have the right to predict the end of the world. There is always something dramatic and entertaining about predicting the world will end or hearing such a prediction. Because you're entirely unlikely to believe it, such a prediction is not overly upsetting. And then, hardly anyone fails on such an occasion to do a bit of thinking. What would he do, for instance, if he really knew the end of the world were imminent? It provides a way to take self-inventory. Sort of like Thanksgiving. We do not believe your prediction, Dr. Lawfed and Mrs. Martin. We seriously doubt either the reliability of your communications or the intelligence of the spacemen you have talked to. But we believe we would take up arms to protect your right to talk with spacemen and to predict the end of the world. You have damaged the saucer situation to a great extent because of the adverse publicity you've received. But at the same time, you've given us serious food for thought. Other saucer writers of the time were not as concerned with the civil liberties of saucer believers. Rather, they were troubled by the potential impact of these failed prophecies on the credibility of flying saucer organizations and researchers. Consider this editorial from Henry Madday in the January 1955 issue of Vimana, published by the Detroit Flying Saucer Club. From the beginning of our club last July, we determined that we would let the flying saucer pattern tell itself, give us its particular nuance. In a word, we would tune in, for we are primarily listening posts. To remain objective is not only necessary, but keeping a club like ours apart from any cultism is to believe that one can remain normal and still be starry-eyed. How regrettable, then, that ordeals such as the end of the world with its cataclysmic changes should be foreordained for December 21st, 1954. That flying saucers should have been attached to the Dorothy Martin prophecies means that we pass through our own special test of fidelity. We simply cannot believe that the space people work this way. Perhaps in a later editorial, we will give our viewpoint on the dangers of extrasensory perception, which should be cultivated, and most discriminately, only by those with a ripe spiritual foundation, and then not courted as an end in itself. Madday regrets that saucers should have been attached to Martin's predictions and seems to be attempting to draw a distinction between the phenomenon of the craft and those who claim messages from those occupying the craft. And to be clear... Martin's predictions involved the saucers and saucer occupants from the very beginning. Nothing had become attached to them. That was part of the deal, so much so that she appropriated Truman Bethram's planet Clarion as one of the homes of the beings. Madet is giving us a clumsy attempt at damage control, an attempt to walk a very fine line that distances the Flying Saucer Club from the Martin incident, while not entirely dismissing the notion of ESP as a means of communication with the aliens. Speaking of damage control, we also have uh, Michigan Adamski shill Laura Markser. Billing herself as a flying saucer lecturer and the director of the Flying Saucer Research Society, 
She wrote an article called Flying Saucers and Cultists that was published in the January 1955 issue of the Saucer Sentinel, a newsletter published out of Saginaw, Michigan. I speak for the countless volunteer civilian flying saucer researchers who are conducting a serious investigation on the presence of unidentified flying objects. Especially, I speak for the local saucer investigation groups that have tried to point out to the press these recent days that the Lofthead messages were from unknown psychic realms and had nothing to do with the serious physical investigation that has been done over the years by hundreds of conservative people through orthodox channels. Apparently, it suits the newspapers to ignore the differentiation, for they have not mentioned it. It is only fair that we have an opportunity to state publicly that all of our local saucer investigation has been done from the physical plane on which we exist. This is particularly rich coming from Marxer, who had made her own failed predictions and was warned by George Adamski against relying on ESP. Like Maday's article, it's an attempt to portray Martin, who Marxer does not actually mention at all, and Lawfed's group as an outlier, whose existence and subsequent failure was tarring all of saucerdom with a bad brush. It's a great injustice, isn't it? But this leads me in what I, I think may be an interesting direction. At some point, the saucer world undergoes some divisions. There are splits between the material and immaterial theories and theorists. The contactees head off into their own cul-de-sac and then bifurcate into the physical contactees versus the channeling contactees. Team Adamski versus Team Ashtar, if you will. Adamski himself, writing in Baker's Saucerian newsletter, defending himself against Mosley's expose, takes a pot shot at Lawfed, for example. Not all of these splits took place simultaneously, of course, but I think we can argue that the Martin Lawfed incident was a, not the, catalyst for the fracturing of the saucer scene. The Detroit Saucer Club, for example, had been an organization that had a remarkably broad ambit sponsoring speakers as diverse as George Adamski and Donald Kehoe, which is about as far apart from each other on the saucer spectrum as you can get. George Hunt Williamson, with his channeled messages, was a key figure in that club's efforts to promote flying saucer knowledge as well. That kind of diversity doesn't last long. There's a sense that you need to pick a side, physical craft or ethereal craft, aliens or inhabitants of the hollow earth, Contactees are liars or contacts have occurred, and are they physical contacts or psychic contacts? More and more researchers lock into a particular angle to the exclusion of others. To be clear, I'm not arguing that the failed Martin predictions caused this. I am arguing that it was one particularly public catalyst that contributed to the fracturing. And this fracturing could be personal as well. We know that in the mid-1950s, there was a falling out between George Adamski and one of the original witnesses to his Desert Center contact, George Hunt Williamson. Was the question of ESP or channeled contacts in a post-Martin Lawhead world one of the factors? Perhaps. And it's no mistake or coincidence that I'm invoking the name of George Hunt Williamson. We last saw him in Encounter 306, The Saucers Speak. And the lives of Dorothy Martin, the Lawheads, and Williamson become entangled around this time. According to Zerger and Martinelli's biography of Williamson, The Incredible Life of George Hunt Williamson, Lawhead met Williamson when the latter was giving a lecture in Detroit in December of 1954. December of 1954. So basically, the same exact time when the fervor over Dorothy Martin's predictions was reaching its zenith. Interestingly, the biography, unless I missed it, does not mention the end-of-the-world claims or their failure to be proved out. 
But following the failure of the prophecies, the Lofheads and Martin become close with Williamson along with Betty Jane, Williamson's wife at the time. They all located, relocated to Arizona, rather relocated, where Williamson was headquartered. Lillian transcribed channeling sessions that would provide the bulk of Williamson's books, such as 1958's Secret Places of the Lion and 1961's Secret of the Andes, which was published under the name Brother Philip, one of the beings Williamson channeled. In late 1956, Williamson, his wife and son, the law feds and two of their children, and Dorothy Martin left Arizona and set out to Peru. In the words of the Prescott, Arizona Evening Courier, their goal was to, quote, search for ancient lost cities and records in the vast unexplored areas east of the Andean Range. All involved sold their homes, left their jobs, something that Lawfed was getting used to, and relocated their lives. What's not reported in the newspaper is that the trip's, I don't know, when, I don't know if I want to say real purpose or, or a, a superseding goal of the trip, was more spiritual than archaeological and resulted in the establishment of the Priory of the Seven Rays. In his 2002 memoir, Jim Mosley describes Williamson's time in Purdue this way. From the mountain fastness that began issuing bulletins to their followers in the United States, predicting all sorts of disasters, the end of the world, and so on, all of which was shockingly close to the messages Williamson claimed to have received from the space people. The doctrines of the Brotherhood were also liberally sprinkled with implicit anti-Semitism, anti-Catholicism, a bit dangerous in Catholic Peru, and paranoia about the evil influences of the international bankers, all themes that would be featured in Williamson's later writings and pronouncements. What Mosley doesn't mention is that channeled messages about the impending end of the world and all sorts of disasters were also shockingly close to the messages that Dorothy Martin had proclaimed in 1954. But uh, Mosley doesn't even mention Martin by name. I think she's included, and uh, when he says some others went along with Williamson. Within a few months, however, the Lawfeds decided to return to the United States. Gray Barker, in his Saucerian Bulletin, which was a briefer, more news and gossip-oriented publication, published this hot news in the May 30th, 1957 edition. We certainly hope this is an idle rumor and that there is nothing to it, but reports coming from Peru have it that George H. Williamson and Dr. Charles Lawfed have had a disagreement over the project down there. Williamson, rumored now to be functioning independently and to be searching for a lost city, Williamson's exact headquarters are being kept a secret, but mail will reach him through the American Embassy, Lima, Peru. Incidentally, Williams' book, Other Tongues, Other Flesh, is getting rave reviews everywhere. We can supply him. See listing on another page. Gossipy, informative, and mostly a lead-in designed to sell books. Gray Barker was the best. In the August 1957 Caesarian Bulletin, Barker provided an update about the shenanigans of Williamson and Lawfed as well. Exclusive. Dr. Charles Lawfed has abandoned his priory at Moyamba, Peru, and is headed back or is already back in the States. This move came about, according to reliable information reaching the bulletin, because of a difference of opinion between Lawfed and George Hunt Williamson, also one of the organizers of the Priory. In bulletins which he has sent to the U.S., Williamson has outlined his activities since leaving the Priory. He has formed what he terms the Abbey in a secret valley in Peru where he was led, he says, by telepathic messages from members of the Brotherhood of the Seven Rays, which has a hidden monastery at Lake Titicaca, Peru. 
Members of the secret brotherhood, which have existed there from the days of Atlantis and Lemuria, are, according to Williamson, ready to reveal ancient information withheld from the world until this date. Although Williamson has not revealed the location of the secret valley where the group is now living, the bulletin has information that it lies six degrees south latitude east of the Andean mountain range. Back to Dr. Lofthead again. At press time, the bulletin has it that he is now in Prescott, Arizona, where he has established a practice. Dr. Lofthead formerly was employed by the Veterans Administration of Whipple, Arizona. Parker then explains that one of his correspondents contacted Lofthead's former employers looking for a reference. While we don't have the letter in which the correspondent asked about Lofthead, and I only wish we did, we have the response. In what must have been a very odd reference letter to write, a Dr. Gren Lubeck replied, This is in reply to your letter of May 8th regarding Dr. Charles Lofthead, who until recently was a member of our medical staff. I understand that Dr. Lofthead is now in Peru and is engaged in a religious retreat for the Order of the Seven Rays. This order is greatly interested in extrasensory perception, such as mental telepathy and abilities to predict future events. Dr. Lofthead is one of the leaders of this group. Insofar as Dr. Lofthead's character is concerned, he is ethical and a conscientious physician and has the ability to establish good rapport with patients and other medical personnel. I hope this information will be of some value to you in making your decision regarding your contemplated move to Peru. Sincerely, Glenn H. Lubeck, M.D., Director, Professional Services. Imagine being poor Glenn Lubeck. Having lost a competent doctor to the lures of the mysterious Andes, he now has to provide character references to people who want to go down to Peru and join him. The law feds would remain in Arizona, and I've found no trace of them being involved in paranormal dealings following their return from Peru. From what I could find, Charles died in 1980 and Lillian in 1992. The only thing left to say about the law feds is that in one of those weird paranormal coincidences, in the 1950s, while visiting Mexico, they became acquainted with Andrea Pilharic, the parapsychological researcher who brought Yuri Geller to public attention in later decades. Williamson largely faded from the scene. In the mid-1960s, after rechristening himself Michel Dobarovic, I think, Dobarovic, in 1959, claiming to be descended from Yugoslavian royalty, uh, he gave a few lectures on ancient astronaut theories, and the biography I've mentioned goes into great depth on the claims of his royal blood, which I will decline to do here. He died in 1986 in Long Beach, California, and his obituary describes him as a, quote, prominent Christian scholar, Eastern Orthodox bishop, grand prior and knight commander of the Sovereign Order of St. John of Jerusalem, prince of Serbia, President of the Pacific Geographic Society, anthropologist, archaeologist, explorer, author, and lecturer, recognized world authority on Mayan culture and history, appointed by Queen Elizabeth as archaeologist to the Chalice Well Trust. End quote. If I had any one of those things in my eventual obituary, I would be completely happy. Dorothy Martin's story was, if anything, more strange than those of our other subjects today not least of which because of the remarkable consistency and constancy she demonstrated. The story goes that she was dying of cancer in South America, or the Yucatan, or South America in the Yucatan, depending on which account you read. And she saw a vision of Sananda Jesus, who cured her of cancer with the touch of his hand. She returned to the United States, and founded the Association of Sananda and Sanat Kumara at Mount Shasta in California, 
where she would spend the rest of her life, channeling messages and teaching the lessons of the Kumara spiritual tradition. Near the end of the, her life, the messages she channeled from Sananda Jesus were fairly poignant. Here's a partial message from April of 1992. Mine beloved, I am now speaking unto thee that there be understanding of that which ye shall be given to do. It is for the good of all that I speak thusly unto thee. This is mine time in which I shall release the revelations long withheld, for the time was not come. The new day is now come. Therefore it is propitious that the word of the Lord God be made available unto all which are prepared to receive it. This shall be as the prophecies of yesteryear shall be fulfilled, the promise fulfilled. Be ye as one which hast been tried and found true, trustworthy. I am at my father's business, and he has given unto me the authority and the responsibility of this assignment, and I know well mine part. Be ye as one I have called and prepared for this part. I am with thee unto the end. Forty years later, and Dorothy Martin was still the recipient of secret knowledge for the good of mankind. If, like Gray Barker, we're generous and propose that these messages stemmed from Martin's subconscious, this is a remarkable example of a woman receiving some assurance that she's done what she was supposed to do, that she was called, that she was trustworthy. In what may be the greatest example of the cognitive dissonance described by Festinger and his co-authors in When Prophecy Fails, Dorothy Martin never abandoned the faith, never turned away from the words she received from beyond. The final message from Sananda came at 8.07 a.m., May 3, 1992. Mine beloved, I am speaking unto thee for the good of all. It is now come the time that ye come out of the place wherein ye are. Ye shall shout for joy. Let it be, for many shall greet thee with glad shouts. So be it. No more pain. Amen. Sananda. Dorothy Martin, or Sister Thedra, died reaching the age of 92 at exactly 10 p.m., June 13, 1992. I've read more about this case, a case of a contactee predicting an end of the world that didn't happen in The Atlantic magazine and in Chicago magazine and in an academic monograph than I ever did in a so-called UFO book. And that's telling, I think. It's telling of the short memory that self-styled UFO researchers possess for things that are embarrassing. It's telling of the post-1950s world where theories and ideas are overly divided and categorized. It's telling of a ufology that doesn't want to look at saucer lives that have gone too far off the rails, but it bears looking at and talking about. And the notion of cognitive dissonance is important as well. How many predictions have failed to come true without consequences for the predictors in the past few decades? How many promises of disclosure or confirmation being just around the corner have come and gone? And if you're a UFO person and you haven't read When Prophecy Fails, you need to do so and see if you're reflected in any of those characters, be they Marion Keach or Dr. Armstrong or their real-life counterparts Dorothy Martin or Dr. Lawfed. What would you do if your saucer life fell apart? What would you do if everything you thought you believed about the saucers, if in fact you believe anything about the saucers, if it were profoundly and absolutely and certainly proven to not be factual, what would you do? Would you fade away? Would you double down on those beliefs? Let's all take a moment, maybe, to recognize and reflect on our own experiences of cognitive dissonance in our real lives or in our saucer lives.
in our next encounter, we'll lighten up a little bit and look at the connections between the world of flying saucers and theories about the death of Marilyn Monroe. You know, thinking about it, a woman's death being co-opted by UFO theorists doesn't really seem to lighten things up at all. Regardless, I hope you'll be back in two weeks for Unidentified Flying Candle in the Wind. You can follow along with us at SaucerLife.com and on Twitter and Instagram at SaucerLife, or you can email us at TheSaucerLife at gmail.com. A link to my Facebook presence is in the show notes. You can tune in most Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern as I talk at you from my computer for a few minutes. Thanks to all those who've gotten in touch, left reviews, or spread the word about the show. If you haven't already, you can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast app through the RSS feed on the website. The Saucer Life is written and produced by me, Aaron Gullius. It also featured Nelson Sonat and Evangeline Straith, and it is a Chizo Media production. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you.